Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. Good morning, my name is Damien. Welcome to New City. I'm the senior pastor and I'm grateful to get to preach again this week as we're walking through the three chapters, three very intense chapters in their own way, Romans 9 through 11. I want to start off with a story. Uh, I've heard the story several times. I can't substantiate it, and I haven't been able to find anyone who can, but people just keep sharing it, so I'm just going to do it too. All right? So uh, there's a story that uh, involves a British conference of scholars, and they're talking about comparative religions. These are what they're, the scholars are talking about, and they're in this conversation, and the topic of conversation turns to, is there anything unique to the Christian faith compared to other religions, and if so, what might that be? And so as they begin talking, they're going through a process of elimination. So they start with the incarnation. They say, is that what makes Christianity unique? And then they quickly say no, because they could name other religions who had different versions of a God appearing in human form of some type. So they strike that. It didn't meet their qualifications. The next one was resurrection. Is Christianity different because it's the only religion that uh, gives account of a resurrection? And again, they said, no, that doesn't count because other religions have some type of account from someone returning from the dead. So they go on and on and they're debating. And then all of a sudden, a character that many of us are familiar with, C.S. Lewis, supposedly, walks in the room and he asks them, what are you talking about? And they say to him, well, we're discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions, to which Lewis responded, well, that's easy. He said, it's easy, it's grace. That is Christianity's unique contribution to world religions. And so after some discussion, they all ended up agreeing that the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity and isn't found in other world religions. And so whether this is true or not, or if it's apocryphal, it's hard to argue, right, with the main point, which is that grace is a distinctive figure in our faith. It's distinctive among all world religions and philosophies. The notion that righteousness is God's gift that cannot be earned. And when we accept that, what we see is that this actually revolutionizes the whole enterprise of world religion. If in fact it's true that God in Jesus Christ gives the gift of righteousness freely, and that the way a person becomes righteous is by believing in that, that revolutionizes everything. You see, if that's true, the grace of God introduces a new paradigm of righteousness, a paradigm that has not been found any other place. And you know, we know that, of course, righteousness is directly connected to status. And if we were just to think about the dominant paradigm of a status in Paul's day, it would have been something surrounding uh, probably birth. That would have been the pre-modern understanding of status would have been connected to your birth, whether uh, by man or woman, or by birth order, or by society, or status of where you fall in the hierarchy. That would have been the way in which 
you would have understood your status and then pursued a type of righteousness. That's not really where we are in the modern age. For us, it's performance. Our status is determined by how well we perform in whatever it is. In fact, we'll perform at things that have no business being performed in. We'll make things up. We draw lines everywhere in order to understand where we fall in the pecking order of status. But when we understand grace, all of that ought to go away. So last week's passage was all about God's mercy in choosing. And this week's passage is a continuation of that. It's a a turn in the argument, but Paul continues in the same theme by emphasizing the importance of grace, that righteousness is connected directly to grace. So again, if you haven't been with us over the past three weeks, I'm just going to quickly place you. We are preaching through Romans. We'll go all the way through the end of the book in chapter 16 this semester. But right now we find ourselves in chapters 9 through 11. And chapters 9 through 11, in all of them, all of the chapters, we're addressing the problem of Jewish unbelief. Why is it that if God doesn't give up on his people, the Jews, who are God's people, are not believing? And Paul's going through various arguments to help us understand why that is. And last week, in chapter 9, the last two weeks rather, the emphasis was on God's purpose according to election. And if you missed that, I know you're eager to hear that. So go back last week and you can listen to that sermon for the first time or again. But as Paul continues on, there's a change with a question in the argument. He says, what shall we say then? And rather than focusing again on God's election as he did last week in chapter 9, he's focusing on human responsibility this week. He's focusing on the need for humans uh, to understand the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and to respond in faith. And so I just want to say at the outset that there is no battle uh, between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the Bible. And so my suggestion to all of us is that when we come to a passage that emphasizes God's sovereignty, we just go all in right there. And when we come to a passage that emphasizes our responsibility, let's just go all in right there. And in fact, um, something I read this week, uh, a pastor named Charles Simeon, uh, who lived and was preaching during a time when this debate that we're talking about was very, very heated, he actually has this very interesting illustration of understanding how they might go together. That is to say, God's responsibility and, and, I'm sorry, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They seem at odds, but it's moving us in the same direction. He says, similar to uh, two gears that work in a machine. One gear is turning one way, another gear is turning the other way, but they actually work together in such a way to move the machine forward. And so somehow these two things go together, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And so this week, Paul's really leaning into, really emphasizing human responsibility. And so the way that he'll do that, we'll explore it in three points. The first point is Israel's ignorance. The second point is saving righteousness. And the third one is beautiful feet. So first, Israel's ignorance. Let's start in verse 30. If you have a Bible or a phone, please open it up. We'll be jumping around. Very long passage, striking how many Old Testament quotations and allusions Paul uses. So we can't possibly, unless you want to be here all day, which we don't, uh, we can't get to everything. Uh, But it'll be great to have it in front of you. So as questions are noted, you can come back to it later on your own. So chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? And he's saying, this is the answer. This is what we should say. After all of that in Romans 9. 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why, Paul? Well, he says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so when Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? He's marking a shift in his argument. And particularly, he's going to introduce the uh, distinction between righteousness and, uh, by works and righteousness by faith or belief. And this is going to become dominant. And he actually does it three different times right in the first few verses. We read now in verses 30 through 31, he says, there's a righteousness that is by faith versus a law of righteousness. In chapter 10, verse 3, which Ryan just read, he says there's God's righteousness versus their own righteousness. And then in chapter 10, verse 6, he says the righteousness that is by faith versus in verse 5, he says the righteousness that is by the law. So Paul is setting up in this section of the argument a righteousness that comes from God by faith and all other forms of righteousness. Anything else that is trusted in, anything else that is pursued for the sake of righteousness. And these are the only marks of distinction for Paul in, the, in Romans. Those two distinctions. Once he's to this point in his argument, he's built it to say, so here's the distinction. It's not Jew or Greek. It's not man or woman. It's not slave or free. It's those who trust in God's righteousness by faith or those who trust in their own works for righteousness. That is the distinction. And so let's keep going. Essentially what he's saying is that Israel did pursue righteousness. They did. And the Gentiles didn't. And this is why it's so confusing. It's like, well, if you're pursuing righteousness, how do you not attain righteousness? Well, they didn't. And I'm going to keep repeating myself because Paul keeps repeating himself. The reason they didn't obtain it is because they pursued it by their own works. They thought that the law was given to them to perform for the sake of righteousness. But Paul ends up telling us, and we'll see more clearly in a moment, that that is not what Moses meant. And he helps us understand Moses in a different way. You see, what, uh, what happened is that Israel took a good thing, which was the law, and they got so myo- my- myopically focused on the law that they actually stumbled over the stumbling stone. And this, this is helpful for me. This week I was thinking, and I'm going to tell this story, and I'm sure this has never happened to any of you. So I was recently um, walking to a store and I get out of my car and I'm walking through the parking lot to the store and I'm watching the entrance and I'm thinking about all the things that I need to do in the store really quick in and out. But as I'm, as I'm walking, my focus is so intent at the horizon on the entrance of the store that as I'm walking, I trip over what? The parking stone and immediately stumble and almost fall down to the ground right? I know you've never done anything like that. I know you've never been walking down a path and looked ahead and stumbled. You know what? Actually, uh, many of you, because I've seen it happen, you can walk on a flat road and sometimes you stumble. And then the best part is, is when we do that, we always look back like it was somebody else's fault. You know, it's like you're walking, you're like, what? And you look around. It's like, can you believe that thing just jumped up out of the way? Right? We all know this experience. This is similar to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that they were so focused on, on righteousness in the law 
that they stumbled over the stone. Well, you could say, why was the stone there? Well, commentators will say, when we go into the Old Testament quotation and we follow this idea of a stone of stumbling, this isn't the only place it shows up. It's a, it's a regular place, a rock or a stone of stumbling. What, the way we should picture it is that it was so clearly in the path, God put it there so that they couldn't miss it. He said, I'm putting it here so you can't miss it. It's right there in the middle of the path. And yet they did. They stumbled over it. And we could ask the question, why? Why were they so myopically concentrating on the law and its demands that they missed Christ, the stone that God had placed in their path? What was the reason? Paul's already said it's because they pursued it as though it was based on works and not on faith. But why, Paul? Why does that matter? So imagine the stone, for example. When you come to the stone, when you pursue righteousness by faith, you see the stone and you say, I have to build my whole life on that stone. My whole hope has to be on this stone. I have no hope apart from this stone. So you stop and you organize your entire life around that stone. It's not a stone of offense, it's a stone of hope. But there's another way to approach the stone and this is how Israel did it. They actually approached it and saw it as an offense. They actually saw it not as a, a stone to build their whole life on, but rather a stone to stumble over. So as we keep reading, what Paul gives another reason here is that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Verse 3, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Okay, well, what does Paul mean by ignorant here? Does it mean, does he mean that they didn't know, they'd never heard? And we're going to skip all the way down to verse 18 because Paul actually gets to that later. Okay, so in verse 18, he asks the question, but I ask, have they not heard? That's actually a good question we should ask. Well, maybe they didn't hear that Jesus was their only hope. Maybe they didn't hear that God was going to provide righteousness by faith. Have they never heard that, Paul? Well, he says, have they not heard? He says his answer, indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's saying, no, every Jew has heard. They've heard Moses. So then you could say, but did they not understand, Paul? They may have heard, but did they not understand? And he asks that question in verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? The answer is, yeah, they understood. Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. That's the Gentiles. I have shown myself to those who did not seek my face. That's the Gentiles. But of Israel, he says. All day long, I held out my hands. All day long. You could say, all in redemptive history, I've held out my hands saying, come and receive righteousness from me. Come and receive this gift. Come and receive. And what did they do? Paul says, I held out my, or God says, uh, I've held out my hands all day long to this disobedient and contrary people. What made them disobedient and contrary? Well, now we'll come back to the second part of verse 3. They were ignorant, willfully. Why? How were they disobedient? Paul says they sought to establish their own righteousness and did not submit to God's righteousness. This is how they were disobedient. John Calvin comments on this verse. He says the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. 
So if you and I are going to become righteous, if we're going to become pure in God's sight, if we're going to receive the gift of righteousness, the first thing we have to do is lay down all of our righteousness. Not just some of it, not just a part of it, not just most of it, not just the thing that you like the best about yourself. You have to lay that down. Not just your bad works, but also your good works. We have to lay everything down. We have to renounce everything in order to receive God's righteousness. But Israel stumbled because to them, this was not righteousness. It wasn't enough to receive God's righteousness. John Stott says it this way. He says, The ignorance of the true way and this tragic adoption of the false way are by no means limited, though, to Jewish people. They are widespread among religious people of all faiths, including professing Christians. All human beings who know that God is righteous and they are not naturally naturally look around for a righteousness which might fit them to stand in God's presence. There are only two possible options before us. The first is to attempt to build or establish our own righteousness by our good works or to receive God's righteousness by Christ's work. Listen, we find so many ways to build our own righteousness. We draw lines and create self-made systems in order to establish our own righteousness, first in our own sight, then in other people's sight, and then ultimately God's sight. I just thought of a few. Some of us have on-time righteousness, right? It's like, you know what? If you really cared about me, if you really were a half-decent human being, you'd show up on time, right? Because you're wasting my time if you don't show up on time. And you feel righteous, In that moment, the indignation that might come from you, this is definitely not me. If you've had a meeting with me, you know this isn't me. But some of us, though, flip it on the other side, right? It's like, well, that was very important. Self, uh, on-time righteousness. What about wake-up-early righteousness? Right, some of you, like, you try to slip in what time you woke up that morning. It's like, yeah, I've been up since (laughs) 4.45. So anyway, um, how are you today? Try to slip that in somehow. Wake up early righteousness. Some of us eat healthy righteousness, right? Yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm just not really, um, I'm going to eat a salad. Uh, that's what I'm going to do, right? For the sake of righteousness. Some of us have political cause righteousness, right? We're really into that particular cause and we want to get our life around that particular thing because by being on the right side of history, it makes us righteous, some of us have leadership style righteousness, right? We look at, we look at other bosses, like maybe in your organization, uh, you're at a certain level and you look at the other, uh, those uh, at your level. I was talking with someone recently, we were talking about this righteousness and, and someone from their, their department comes and says, man, I wish my boss was more like you. And you feel this, oh yeah, me too. I wish they were more like me too. Because then this whole place would be better. And everyone would be more righteous. This is the last one, and this might be meddling a little bit, but some of us have parenting style righteousness. And, it, and it's the worst, the least amount of kids you have and the younger your kids are. That's when it's the worst, right? And it's even worse when you're married and you don't have kids yet. That's when parenting style righteousness is the worst, actually. Right? You're like, well, I mean, you know, you get in the car and listen, how do I know this so well? Because this was me. 
This was me, what I'm about to say. Leah and I, before we had kids, we'd go over to someone's house and we'd get in the car and we'd drive home. And I'd, and I'd wait a few seconds, you know what I mean? Because I have dignity. But, uh, but, but then I would say, hey, so um, did you see how the dad did that that way? Gosh, I would never do that. I would never do that. Fast forward a few years later, and all of a sudden, uh, I was trying to find a different form of righteousness because parent-style uh, righteousness was not going to work for me. Listen, we naturally are wired to draw lines to know where we stand in terms of righteousness. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist who teaches at NYU, and he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. I don't think Jonathan Haidt is a man of faith. It's an excellent book. He's written several books. I'd recommend them. But in this particular book, one of his key arguments that he shows uh, through the discipline of social psychology and in his case, evolutionary biology, but the point still stands in terms of our experience. And this is what he says. He argues that it's not, just, it's not just that human beings are wired to pursue righteousness, like what's right, what's wrong, but somehow we are wired to pursue a form of self-righteousness, that we actually seek to draw lines and boundaries and tribes to be in that tribe so that we can produce our own righteousness, self-righteousness. And again, uh, this is a very common experience of Christians, you and me. Richard Lovelace, uh, writing on spiritual formation and renewal, says this. He says, writing to Christians, he says, we all automatically gravitate to the idea that we are justified by our level of sanctification. And so some of you, uh, you don't, those words are, are like, I'm not quite sure exactly what you mean by that. So those of you who get that, get it, but the rest of the context is going to help all of us. This is what he means. He said, we start each day with our personal security, resting not on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or our, rec our recent achievements in religion. Since these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we are inevitably moved to a self-righteousness that falsifies our record to achieve a sense of peace. Listen, what these authors are saying and the point that I'm making and what Paul is saying is that even Israel, who had God's gracious gift held out to them all day long, have fallen into this trap of the need to produce self-righteousness. The need to not receive righteousness as a gift, but rather to produce it. And what Richard Lovelace is saying, and Jonathan Haidt in his own way is pointing out, is that every day you and I wake up and in this current state before glory, our minds oftentimes go to assessing our status and how righteous we are and how much God loves us by our performance that day before, the week before, that season of life, or just how we feel when we woke up in the morning. Do you see how, how tricky this is? Do you see how the inertia of our life leads us to this place? And so in that moment, we have two choices. We can say that's not true. My righteousness and God's love for me is not based on my performance. And we can get our minds and hearts in line with what God says, or we can get up and take the first step of the day to go try to build our own kingdom of self-righteousness in whatever way that is. Those are the only two options. And so this is why 
the message of righteousness by God's free gift of grace is either a stumbling block that we can't accept or a stone that we say, I have to build my whole life on this. Which one of it is it for you today? My invitation is to come to the stone, come to the rock of Christ and say, I need to build my whole life on this and rest on him. And the last thing I want to say about this is you don't have to be a, you don't have to um, say you're a religious person in order to experience this quest for building self-righteousness. The quotes I've been using are directed at religious people. Jonathan Haidt's not talking about only religious people. Years ago, in his book, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller observed how the secular West, where we live now, has become one of the most moralistic cultures in history. You see, what ends up happening is that because people need this form of righteousness, we have this proliferation. That is just to say an increase of all of these options of ways that you can give yourself to in order to make yourself feel okay. And there are lots of ways this is. Most of them include causes of some type, whatever the cause of the day is. The example that Keller uses from several years ago in his book, Making Sense of God, is that of tolerance and justice. He said people who are passionate for justice, and he's talking mainly to non-Christians here, but it can be true of Christians too. People who are passionate for justice often become self-righteous and cruel when they confront persons whom they perceive as being oppressors, right? So the point is, is that if you're passionate against injustice and oppression, all of a sudden, because being against oppression and justice is your form of righteousness, as soon as you encounter people who don't reach your level of sophistication in justice and oppression, you then begin to oppress them. And what Keller goes on to say is that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides a non-oppressive absolute truth, one that provides a norm outside of ourselves as the way to escape self-righteousness. Yet, it removes our ability to oppress others. So Israel did not obtain righteousness because they fell into that all-familiar trap of pursuing righteousness as though it was by works. And so our invitation this morning is don't pursue that trap. Don't pursue that trap. So Paul explores the saving righteousness that is by faith in the next verses. So let's take a look at that. Verses 5 through 13. So in verse 4, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And now he's making this transition in verse 5. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. That's a quotation from Leviticus. But then he quotes Deuteronomy. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is one of those sections that can be confusing. Like, what is he talking about going up, coming down? But whenever we go back and see the context of Deuteronomy, it becomes a little clearer to us. And so I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I want you to listen and see how familiar Deuteronomy chapter 30 sounds to what Paul just said. This is, what, this is Moses. He says, For this commandment that I command you today 
is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. You see, this is a strong allusion. And in verse nine, it's a direct quotation of what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 30. And so, as one commentator says, what Moses has said about Paul's teaching, or Moses' teaching, Paul now affirms about the gospel. It is neither remote nor unavailable. There is no need to ask who will ascend to heaven to bring Christ down or descend into hell to bring Christ up. For Christ has come and died, and he's been raised, and therefore he is immediately accessible to faith. We do not need to do anything. Everything that is necessary has already been done. You see, Moses told the people of Israel, the gift is right here. You don't have to accomplish it, but yet they tried. And Paul is saying, it applies to us here. Jesus has already come and brought everything you need. You don't have to go up into heaven and bring him down and say, how can I earn your favor? How can I earn your love? Or you don't have to go try to save him out of hell and death and somehow get him to come back. No, he's raised himself from the dead. He came down on his own. He raised himself on his own. And now he gives you this gift of righteousness alone. That's what's happening here. Author Chris Watkin has a really helpful picture to bring this home for me. He talks about the difference of an N shape. Think about the letter N, like a lowercase N. It goes like this and comes down. An N-shaped view of righteousness or a U-shaped, right? If you remember, N starts here, goes this way. I guess for you, it would go this way. And then a U goes down like this. You remember this? Very elementary, right? Let's start with N though. Most of us view at times our relationship with God in an N-shaped reality. We essentially view that somehow we need to earn our salvation either entirely or in part, or at least keep God's favor by our obedience, And so what we think is our obedience will bring us up, the end will bring us up to God. And then if we get up here, God will bless us with blessings. Our obedience takes us up to God in fellowship and then God rewards us with blessings. That is not the view of biblical religion. It's actually a U-shaped view, which is that all day long, every day, moment by moment, God's grace is poured out on you and you and I respond in gratitude. This is what Paul's saying. Nobody has to go up and come back down. God in Jesus Christ has already come down and lifts us up, gives us his righteousness. Do you see? And what does this righteousness do? It evokes gratitude. It evokes gratitude. Karl Barth has this great image about the relationship between God's grace and then our obedience and gratitude. He said, God's grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo. Think about that. Imagine yourself in a cave and you speak. But when you speak, what naturally happens? An echo comes back to you, right? If we think we can earn favor with God, it's like thinking we can produce an echo without the voice. Or thunder and lightning, how they go together. God's grace comes down and we respond in gratitude. You see, this is what Paul is getting at. The reason that Israel 
did not obtain righteousness is because they thought that it was the in-shaped reality, that they had to work for it by their own works. But no, Paul says righteousness comes down from God in a U-shaped reality. And he goes on to drive home the point. Verse 11, this isn't just for some, this is for everyone. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, and he bestows his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All status for righteousness is gone. See, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, a man, or a woman, any race, any culture, all distinctions for righteousness are rendered irrelevant. It's do you trust in Jesus and his righteousness or do you trust in the works of your hands for your own righteousness? This is the demarcating line for Paul. And he says, this is why the Jews failed. It's because they thought it was the works of their own hands that made them righteous. And so as Paul continues on, this next section, I was talking with Ben about this, we really could have made it into its own sermon. It probably ought to have been its own sermon in one way. And it would have been on evangelism. It would have been on how are we to receive this grace of God and respond in gratitude. And Paul can't help himself but say, by telling other people. That's how you respond to this gift of gratitude, is you tell other people. He says, how then will they, anyone, right? Because he just said, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And he says, well, how will they know? How will they hear? Unless they have not believed. And then he builds on this rhetorical question. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And when we read this, whose beautiful feet should we think of first? Not Paul's, not yours, not mine, but Jesus. Jesus' beautiful feet. Why would we start doing the in-shaped thing now? Well, yeah, I guess now we got to go tell people, right? I mean, I guess that's our duty. No, the first beautiful feet that we focus on is Jesus. Jesus came down, his beautiful feet. He proclaimed the good news. He proclaimed freedom to the captive. He proclaimed sight to the blind. He proclaimed righteousness for those who did not deserve righteousness. And then he lived that life and died. And it's only from that place that you and I realize oh yeah, that word is in our mouth, it's in our heart. And so we have beautiful feet too. We move out into the world with beautiful feet to share. And I'm going to conclude this way. I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase an author who describes how the gospel produces, as he says, a constellation of traits in taking this message to others. So what is that U-shaped people, the people who are shaped by God's grace being poured out on us and then moving out into the world. How does the U-shaped version of righteousness move us into sharing our faith? This is the constellation of traits. First, we are compelled to share the gospel out of generosity and love, not guilt. If you and I move towards evangelism, sharing the, our faith because we feel guilty that we don't, we haven't quite gotten it yet. We have to move out in gratitude. Second, 
We are freed from fear of being ridiculed or hurt by others since we already have the favor of God by grace. Third, there is a humility in our dealings with others because we know we are saved only by grace alone, not because of our superior insight or character or openness to the gospel. We just go out and say, this had nothing to do with me. God did this to me and now I'm offering it to you. Fourth, we are hopeful about anyone. (laughs) Even the hard cases. Like, yeah, that guy, that girl, yeah, I don't think God could do that. No. When we recognize that God came and got us by his grace, and apart from that, we wouldn't have been saved. Now we understand that since we weren't likely people to become Christians, God can save them too. Fifth, we are courteous and careful with people. We don't have to push or coerce them, for it is only God's grace that opens hearts, not our eloquence or persistence or even their openness. All these traits not only create a winsome evangelist with beautiful feet, but also an excellent neighbor. And so as you and I now move out, I want us to move out with two things in mind. One, if you're in Christ, God loves you now as much as he ever will. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less from this moment or to make him love you more in Jesus Christ. And the second thing is, as as you move out to tell others with beautiful feet, the pressure is off because it's not your job to change or save anyone. Rather, it's to just speak what has been true in your life to them. And this is where Paul ends this week. Next week, he'll take us on into another argument, but let's rest today in the fact that our hope and righteousness comes from a gift, not from our earning. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. And I pray for those here who have not yet trusted in Jesus, that I pray this morning they would see the news as beautiful, that they would receive this gift in Jesus Christ for righteousness. I pray for those of us who have received this gift for righteousness, that our lives would be shaped more and more by this, and that gratitude would move us out, that we would receive your goodness and your gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.